created live on Fireside. And we're back. Hi, everybody. Hey, Danny. Hi. How are you, Chris? Folks, welcome to it. This is Doing It Sober Live with Chris Snell and the ever so beautiful, ever so sassy, ever so lovable. I did say lovable, right? Danny Park. Absolutely. We had to social distance for two years. (laughs) Now Now let's socially congregate virtually. Virtually. <laughs> Online. <laughs> That's the best I could come up with. Well, oh, well, what can you do? Something good. You're always so witty. Well, well, you brought that out in me. I've told you this off air. You know, you've, you've really brought the best out of me. And uh, um, I give you credit for that. You know, God places people in our paths for various reasons. You know, you you know the saying as well as I. Just to bring this to a close, as we wait for Doctor Doka, um, I don't believe in just a season. I believe that there's a reason. Mm, yeah. So at the end of the day, folks, let's make use of this time. I would like to add what uh, Danny had mentioned with regards to social media. If you are watching on YouTube or LinkedIn or Facebook. This is a safe place. I know when it comes to sobriety, it's scary fields to uh, to try and navigate. But this is the reason why this program was started, to help give you a sense of belonging and to not necessarily hear the same thing over and over, but to gain a refreshing insight into the subject matter courtesy of the guests that we bring in as equally important, the most important, and of course, through Danny and myself, lastly. So folks, please, you're more than welcome to come on. You don't have to necessarily always say your name. You can stay anonymous if you so wish. It's entirely up to you. Talk to us. Talk to yeah. us. The world is getting smaller and smaller. So true. It's so true. And um, hi, Woody. You're, you're loyal to us. And I do see you on a lot of shows. Been. So I just want to say hello. You're not much of a talker, but if by chance one day you want to ask a question, you don't have to come on camera. Feel free. Absolutely. Feel free. We want to know who you are. We want to know who you guys are. Let me put it this way. Not many of us have had the privilege of family. Hmm. I'm primo example of that. But that's it as well. Consider this your instant, not insta, your instant family. A place we will not be judged, but you will be welcomed with open arms. And no matter what you went through, no matter what you're going through presently, this is your home. You know, I often say in meetings, two words to people who come into recovery early. It's just two words. Welcome home. So ultimately, we want to welcome you home. No matter what. (laughs) No matter what, how many years you've got, days, 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 let's put it in that perspective. No matter how many days you might have in early recovery or what you have been through, to reiterate myself, creed, color, race, religion, 
None of that matters. This is your haven. This is your reason to ask. What exactly is it? You know, when I went into recovery the first time, it was a fact for me of, I just wanted to stay away. Then as I gradually, by grace, went on to year two, I wanted to discover the why. This should be your why. Or serve as a why, at least. Mm. So don't be afraid, guys. Please don't be afraid. No. This, you're going to be safe here. You know, it's so interesting. I wish I could, I'm trying to remember of the situation I had today where I, it was a certain scenario where I would typically freak out and go, mm-hmm. oh my God, um, not as much as I used to, of course, but I just remembered the situation. And I thought, I really want to remember this situation, but of course I didn't write it down because you just forget. But I remember specifically that I was like, oh, well, and it's just, it's part of the deal. Oh, you yeah. have this, excuse me one oh, second. Poo. Well, you know what? I'll carry on in while well, you're busy there. You know what? This might seem a little bit too far ahead of the concept, but let me, let me throw it in for good measure. I spoke with Danny on this last week, and we touched on it a little bit as we were preparing for the show with Dr. Doka. It's funny when you think when you put down the drink or you put down the substance for shorthand, where do you go to from here? Where's there a place to go for you? What do you do that, that, that nourishes your soul? Now, I don't care if you're left-brained uh, oriented or right-brain oriented. We all are given gifts, talents, right? Uh, for example, Danny is a jeweler and a merchandise maker from which Doing It Sober Live operates within. I... I'm a chatterbox. For many years, people have told me, you can't shut up. Danny, this is a true story. When I just finished school, I didn't know what to do. And my mother and I were talking about bits and bobs. And she said to me the one day, you know what? You can't just shut the fuck up for two sentences. Make that your career. And here we sit a couple of years later. So at the end of the day, cherish that gift. Take some time, try out your versatility. And Danny, you'll remember this. This this was just when you and I had met in 2020. Try out your versatility. If you feel you've got the need to try out music, try it out. What's stopping you? There's plenty of tutorials in the cyber universe. If you want to try your hand at jewelry, it's not so expensive. Hey, I made these. It's time consuming. Exactly. It's time consuming, surely, but that's a hobby. How do you gift? I'm listening. There's some people that, and it's not an egotistical thing. I'm not bragging, but either I'm extremely ambitious or I'm cheap or I like to make money. money, um, All right. Ever the capitalist. I can appreciate that. Or whatever you want to call it. There ain't shit I can do. Sure, sure. I mean, I fixed a car, you know, I I, I just refuse. I do all my own um, Botox and my own stuff to my face. You know, I talk about a self-starter. I mean, I do everything, you know, and it's because I love to 
learn. I'm an artist. And I think maybe that has part of it. You know, being an artist. I feel exactly the same. Right. In fact, can I show you my latest painting that I've just done? Yes, of course. Let's see it. Let me, let me add a little bit of background to this. I was always an artistic kid since the age of eight. And um, I didn't do art for well over 10 years. And like you said, self-starter, just got the itch. One fine day, went out, got the acrylic paint and got A4 sketch pads. This was the first draft. Let me just pull it over back. ACDC, my fave. Which I did with just pure pencil yeah. and uh, overdid it with a Sharpie. This was the first attempt. Yeah. This is the same design, part two with acrylic. Oh, very cool. I love it. You know, Chris, I have a 12 and 12 t-shirt that, that has the little, it looks like ACDC is 12 and 12. But Oh, really? That. Are you a fan of ACDC? Very much, very much, very much. In fact, uh, if there was one constant in my life, it's been music. But not the stuff that the kids listen to, let's be honest. But uh, the nostalgia music, I don't believe in that term, golden oldies. The classics. <laughs> I have an ACDC story. So, AC Oh, please, I'm listening. <laughs> it was, I think it may have even been my first concert. And I went really? to... I went to an ACDC concert at, at a place called Irvine Gardens, and it is a yeah. huge venue that's all outdoors. Actually, no, I had been there to see Iron Maiden backstage with my dad when I was a little girl. Um, right, right, right. I remember. I had been there, but I hadn't been there as a as a guest, you know, as, as a concert right. goer. Right, so right, right, right. I was uh, living in the OC with my aunt because I moved out. I was all upset with my mom at 16 and, oh, you know, so I moved out. <laughs> We've all been there. And there's this, so there's, it's an amphitheater and there's one ledge and that's the, the highest ledge where there's concrete. And I was on that ledge with my girlfriend. And at one point, the entire concert was, take it off. Take it off. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! There we go. Hey, there goes that story. Well, that you had to be there. Let me invite Lumia. All right. We got Lumia. I've already had a well. <laughs> it was great. <sighs> Thank you so much for that. Second. It was fun. You well, you know what? It's those, those things. Absolutely. I remember seeing Nickelback at the Coca-Cola Dome here in my country in 2013. Oh, really? Great, great concert. It's erupted into a riot. Oh, how sad. A mosh pit, there wasn't. Well, there was no space for a mosh pit, but people wanted to mosh, so they moshed. Well, Doc is uh, carrying on there. Let's introduce her. Therapy is a word that is prevalent. <clears throat> Specialists to their naked eye whom sit back and listen to a desperate soul prattle on... They write a prescription in the end and bag a modestly fat check for the session day in and day out. You've seen and heard that archetype, haven't you? A stereotypical cliche, sad to say. Equal to that, the medical community, no thanks to the Hippocratic Oath, doesn't take too kindly to revolutionary ideas that doesn't specifically remain within a singular lane of treatment. Dr. Lumi Doka is the subject of this kind of practice, a healthcare professional with a multi-tiered background in facets including clinical, OMH, and OASIS treatment. Dr. Doka 
has beyond, gone beyond the call to aid the suffering, to both appreciation and to eye, I suspect. Miss Doker today separates the corn from the chaff for us on DIS Live. Doctor, a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, Doc, take us a little bit back. Whereabouts did uh, your whole interest in therapy start? Did this happen more or less after you went through some struggles yourself? How about did that come to be? So I just want to clarify, I'm not a doctor. I'm a licensed mental health counselor. Um, so I don't want to come off saying I'm a doctor. That's not my credentials. Um, but how I came about um, in the mental health field, um, I do have relatives that struggle with substance abuse disorders. I've lived with relatives who struggled with substance abuse disorders. It greatly impacted my life, which kind of led me on the journey to help others struggling with substance use as well. All right. And tell us a bit about your techniques, your approach to helping people who have mental health issues. I mean, it's just based on the individual, depending on what their um, symptoms are, what their needs are, you know, what they're struggling with, where I'll form a decision on what type of therapeutic modality to use. So, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, if it's substance abuse, you know, I'll start off with motivational interviewing. Or if it's trauma, you know, I'll do some trauma-based therapy. It depends on the needs of the patient. I see. A very versatile repertoire you have. Codependency is something that you've seen firsthand, it sounds like. Right. It's something I've experienced firsthand as well, yes. Yes, you've experienced. So what is it that makes my mom and dad were, they enabled me for a long time in my addiction. I had no idea that they were just trying to help, they were, but they were actually making it worse. <laughs> Why does this happen? Like, what is the thinking on this? I mean, so it's not just a straight answer, right? right. So codependency, the definition of codependency, it's kind of like a simple way to put, put it, um, a need to be needed. Um, you know, it's, it feels good to be needed. You know, it gives you a purpose, a sense. It gives you a worth. But it's not in every case. Not every person feels as if their worth is based on how much other people love them or how much they can give to other people. For your parents, I don't know the background story, but it sounds like they just didn't know what to do. Yeah. You know, they did everything they can. Like, you know, what if we, you know, give her some money, you know, maybe she, she won't, won't want to use, or every case is different. Ms. Doka, if I may ask, uh, again, apologies, I misassumed that you were a professional with a medical license. So, Ms. Doka, from now on, tell me, whereabouts... Do you differentiate between feeling that need to excel and ultimately becoming, using the same example that uh, Daniela has, having that need to excel that comes naturally versus becoming adherent to wanting to feel it all the time? Because obviously, as you quite rightly say, we all feel the need or we just, we feel to be complimented is a natural occurrence, but then... Of course, when you become constricted in wanting it consistently every time, whereabouts is that line, if you understand my question? Or do you want me to phrase it differently? I think I understand um, what you're asking. So what causes somebody to be codependent in a sense of it gives them a sense of worth? It has a lot to do, in my opinion, 
with um, their upbringing and their childhood and family dynamics. They felt as a child, maybe they weren't enough or they weren't worthy or they model their parents in a way where you must do everything you can for your loved one or else you're unworthy, you're not enough, you're Mm. whatever that core belief that you hold kind of gives you this need to want to be needed, if that makes sense. It does, it It does, does. because I get the idea there's been a one-sided depiction of especially where codependency is concerned, within a relationship structure between either man or a woman and or otherwise. But it's surprising to see how that also is an extremely wide swath within a familial structure or a friendship structure. Mm. What are some of the techniques that you give people in order to start over bridging or creating a a bridge in order to mend that part of that soul? As far as how to stop engaging in that codependent behavior. Is that what you're In asking? so many words, correct. Yes. First thing I tell them is to try to detach. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's not easy. It's not easy. It's not. It takes a lot coming firsthand. It's very difficult to detach from a situation, especially if you love the person and you see them going, you know, through a downward spiral. And it's very hard to not want mm. to catch and save them. But what I'm talking about is not exactly, uh, I'm sorry for any AA or NA members watching this, but it's not exactly, I'm not talking about detached completely, kick them out of your house and just, you know, mm-hmm. them. I'm talking more so create boundaries, um, allow them to <sighs> the consequences of their behavior, but don't save them or punish them for the behavior. Okay. Um, so if they were to crash the car or fail a test, right, because of their drug use or they were up all night partying, don't punish them for failing that test or crashing the car. Be empathetic, you know, about it and be like, you know, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Don't pay, you know, that's where the boundary is. Don't pay to get it fixed. Let them face the consequences so they understand that, you know, it really is a problem. It's almost... So it's almost... <laughs> As much as the alcoholic changing his way of life as the, or drug addict, as the codependent or the other person on the other end that's enabling, they're both starting a new life. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the person, people of a loved one struggling with addiction, um, they actually go through their own recovery process. It's very difficult because we essentially become addicted to saving our loved one. We become addicted to that chaos. We are riding on that roller coaster with them. And when we take a step back and realize how chaotic our own lives have gotten and how stepped into the addiction we have gotten, even though we're not the ones using, we have to go through the process of why did we allow this to happen? But of course, you motivate them every step of the way. You don't necessarily just tell them, this is the, how the law is played out, inverted commas. You more or less ask them, just try this. So you give them a motivator like a Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb and if they carry along, great stuff. You move on to the next phase. But you'll be with them where they are if they are not ready to move forward. Am I right? Correct. Yeah, I'll meet, I meet them where they're at. And, you know, sure. if they're struggling with a certain stage, you know, we'll continue to work on it until we can move on. And, you know, they come, become better at upholding those boundaries. We're not mm-hmm. reacting to the behavior and chaos. Right. I see. That's, that's very admirable work, I have to say, because, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who have been involved in social work and people who are specialists in recovery, but they have exclusively book knowledge. So they are trying to help, but with just an understanding of from a textbook, they don't necessarily have field experience. And um, 
I've always said to people in similar stances like yourself and in stature, if you take the combination of knowledge, which is admirable, and you combine it with field experience, as you mentioned, you have family yourself who have underwent the same things that your patients go through. You can combine your right and your left half of the brain together and create a foundation for them which is not necessarily just clinical. And it creates a bond. And that I have to tip my hat to you. And I'm not blowing smoke up your skirt, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I definitely understand where the codependent, I hate that word, but where the codependent is coming from, as well as what it feels like to be in that position. Mm. Mm. Why do you hate the word? I just feel like there's a stigma behind the word codependent. Kind of like why I hate the word when somebody's in AA or an NA meeting and, you know, you stand up and say, I'm blah, blah, blah. My name is this. I'm an addict. I absolutely hate that. I wish they would have abolished it. Yeah, exactly. Um, only because there's a stigma that comes to it. It makes you automatically feel like you're a bad person. You're doing something wrong when all your intentions are good. When you say, my name's blah, 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 I'm an addict, that's kind of, in a way, negative self-talk. You're talking down on yourself because society tells you addicts are what? Bad people. Well, whatever the stigma associated with it is. I kind so, of get that. But on the other side, like being the addict or the alcoholic, it it never, I've never thought of it that way. But I can see how proportion, you know, it would technically be self negative self-talk. But for me, I haven't felt that. Not yet. You make it part of your identity. What it is, it's really a disease. So, you know, if you had diabetes, you're, you had cancer, you're not going to say, hi, I'm a cancer. And it's more so like I'm currently struggling with cancer. I'm sure, currently struggling with addiction. I'm in recovery is a way to phrase it where you're not right. That's... subconsciously talking down on yourself. That makes sense. Very much. Because words are weapons. Words are weapons, and if you give it a more positive spin, forgive me, pardon the pun, it helps lighten the load. I can fully agree with what you're saying. Danny, you'll love this. We had um, a gentleman on from Canada not too long ago, uh, Jay Barnard. He's a personal friend of mine. And he flipped the script by saying, don't call yourself an addict, as the case be, or don't call yourself a codependent. Say you're rather in long-term recovery you get that attraction it's like an affirmation. Uh, an affirmation very much very much and it seems like that's what you're also trying to 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 advocate informally in society i agree with you sadly in my experience it appears that society has given addicts who are in recovery a label you slipped up you failed you are a big blank naught on a tic-tac-toe board Nothing you say, nothing you do will change it. But thankfully, we aren't given that uh, option to think that way. We fought to survive and we continue surviving. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is a disease and we're fighting it consistently every given day. But we don't need their approval. We need help from one another because we both understand what each other went through. Your thoughts on that? I totally agree. I totally agree with what you're saying. As far as society, we can't control what society thinks. No, we can't. But I agree, you know, people who are struggling with addiction, they do need they do need the support of people who have gone through um, similar situations, people that they can identify with in order to get through it. Yeah, mm. I mean, that would be, 
or it would be, it would either be identifying like, oh, you went out, let, you know, it's okay, pick yourself up and let's move forward or shame, 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 bad, bad, bad. And then you just have so much shame and guilt that you hide it. It's funny. Let me tell you, this guy that is a friend of mine through, uh, he purchases on my site. I mean, we actually, we're not friends. <laughs> we're just acquaintances. And he's texted me over the, the, you know, period of his sobriety, letting me know, oh, hey, I hit this amount of months and I just encourage him. That's it. He texted me the other day that he read this book, When AA Doesn't Work For You, Rational Steps to Quitting Alcohol. And in this book, it said, after 30 days, your mind, or after a year, your mind resets and you're able to drink normally again. So guess yes. what he did? He tried it. And now he's been drinking for 30 days straight. He was lying to his wife. He was just in, he was absolutely miserable. And it's even worse than it was before because it is progressive. And I mean, can you believe this? This is two doctors that wrote this book. Really? It's, it's, they're doctors? Two doctors. I'd like now I repent for calling you doctor in the first place. Can you send me a link to that book? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Those doctors were, but I'd like to see like the um, scientific yeah. evidence to support that. Rational steps to quitting alcohol. Um, so what happens to the brain is um, there is a memory portion of your brain called something remembrance. It's not clicking, but alcohol or any other drug is in that portion of your brain, right? It's going to be there for forever, unfortunately. That memory of alcohol, what it felt like, right? So if you're having a stressful day, you're, you're 15 years clean and all of a sudden you, you're, you get triggered and you're having a stressful day or whatever happens, the first thought usually can will be, I want to drink alcohol. Like it'll somehow like pop up in there, like rather a second or whatever, because it's in our memory. So as soon as we take that first sip, you know, it's like, ah, I remember this feeling. This is what it felt like. And now you're back down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It, it's really weird. The other day, and I've been, I'm going to be 16 years sober soon. And I okay. don't have cravings. I don't have these thoughts. But I actually started a new medication, Simzia. It's for my um, spinal arthritis. It's uh, not a narcotic or anything like that, but it is. And I've noticed that after I take it, every month I get the treatment. The few days after, I get extremely depressed. Never had that in my life where I just, and I have anxiety. Never had that in my life. It just, anxiety was not anything I've ever had to deal with. I've always been very okay with dealing with stuff. And the other day I thought about having a drink and I tasted it and I thought about, but I played the whole tape through. It was eerie and scary because I had never thought about it like that. And I was thinking, why did I think of that? You know, maybe because it was in my memory. And I think it was because this guy texted me and was talking about his drinking. It kind of triggered me to think about because he was drinking it for breakfast and I was thinking of the taste in my mouth and I was trying to play the tape, you know, because <sighs> you want to, you, my, my thought is I want to beat myself up because everyone says, oh gosh, what, how do they say it? They say, you've been ready for a relapse, not me personally, but you're ready for a relapse long before you actually do it. And so I'm like, oh my God, what does this mean? <laughs> so I don't know if I was just 
responding to his experience or it was me going, oh my God, uh, am I going to have a real, <laughs> you know, it just scared me. You know, I kind of went back there. The good thing is that you're scared to relapse. You know, you have that fear in you still, um, which is very important. People who have 16 years clean, you know, that fear kind of diminishes and they think they can have one drink and they're fine. The fact that you still have that fear in you, that's a good thing. Um, that's another preventative to the relapse. Yeah, I know. I have an honest question. In your dealings with your patients, either for codependency or um, addiction for that matter, <clears throat> excuse me, bug in the throat, do you see with your patients that they exhibit a creative side at all whatsoever? Do you try and enhance that in them? A creative side as far as? Aptitude for art, aptitude for anything extracurricular of that nature that they need an outlet for. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So a lot of people who say stop using or stop drinking, They'll start either um, going to the gym or they'll start writing, you know, journaling or they'll start drawing a lot. You know, I find like a lot of uh, my patients, I don't know why they, they like to draw a lot, you know, when they're in recovery. And that's the reason why I asked. That was an observation that I also began to notice when I began investigating recovery as a whole. I can't say majority, but a good handful outweighing people who like to be physical have an aptitude for an outlet to something right brain oriented. You know as well as I, right brain is your creative, left brain is your more analytical, scientific or math related. I believe you would be, fall under that category because you work with facts. But a lot of people who I've encountered in recovery have an unbelievable outlet for things like art. Maybe it's because of the fact that now they're trying to exercise those demons by taking the image that's in their head and putting it to canvas. Or for that fact, writing prose, writing poetry, and doing spoken word performances. It's an unbelievable phenomenon to see. Yeah. I mean, I never really thought about it until you just brought it up. But um, yes, I do see a lot of my clients who are in recovery now finding outlets in either writing, poetry, drawing, sketching. And they'll show me their artwork. You know, they're proud of it. But I never really thought about that link until you just mentioned it. I'd have to do some more research as to why that is. It was just an occurrence. It was just an occurrence. Believe you me, I was as flabbergasted as you are. Danny herself runs a business in which she exercises her creative side by ma making medallions and so on and so forth. This is just a perception, but that in itself should be a motivator to show the world that we can get better. Here's the proof. We don't need your permission, nor do we need your attaboy, or for that fact, your heave-ho. You can take your heave-ho and go fly a kite. But we are that, that's living proof. We That's a sign in the right direction, Yeah. in my opinion. No, I agree. Do you find that most addicts and alcoholics that you're working with, do they... because the narcissism when we come in, it doesn't matter who the hell you are. I don't care. <laughs> there, we alcoholics are narcissistic. They're just very self-centered. They're very, they're, it's, it's part of the makeup of the, the, the whole disease. I just truly believe that. And it does take time to kind of get away from that. And some people are, they're not as narcissistic, but they are, they have something that they, 
it, it's not that they, the narcissism, is that something that you see continuing on? Is that something really hard to work with somebody on? Like, how do you point that out in somebody? Talk so, about breaking the silence on the dotted line. I mean, the narcissism is, I don't believe they're truly, some are, most, the majority are not narcissistic. I don't see that. They present as narcissistic because um, addiction is a very selfish disease and it doesn't matter who you're going to hurt as long as you get what you want. But that's just the disease. That's not the person. And you have to distinguish, mm. distinguish that because once they come out of their addiction, they're very remorseful. They understand what, they, they know that they've hurt you. They're remorseful about well it. Well said. And you can even see during their active addiction sometimes how like bad they feel about it. Floating. Right. So um, someone with a narcissistic personality disorder doesn't have that type of um, remorse or empathy for other people. Mm. They're more so no. all about them. Right. So there is a difference between narcissistic and... Empathy. Well, yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't feel like I'm a narcissist Like when I came in. I just felt like I was angry, discontented. Um, and when you come in, you tend to talk a lot about yourself and you have to learn to not talk about yourself and to start listening. And that takes a lot of years because all I ever did was talk, 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 talk. And I knew it all. But now I sit back and listen. It's like a totally different person. It's, it's 100 totally a different person and it's interesting because it's natural over a period of time i see who i was and and the changes and it's dramatic how we change in recovery right and i do believe therapy is a was a big helper for me absolutely therapy can definitely definitely helps you know i really encourage everybody to go to therapy regardless of what you're struggling with something small something huge i have a therapist i feel every therapist i know has a therapist yeah <laughs> With that. <laughs> Clever thinking. This is a very broad question in the sense of I might be painting with a broad stroke, but why is it that you think therapy is often looked down upon? Therapy was maybe a generation ago looked down mm. upon. Um, there's a stigma that comes with mental health, like, oh, you're crazy. You know, um, anybody that goes to therapy, you know, there's something really wrong with you. Whereas now this generation's kind of promoting, um, you know, that and the stigma, like mental health awareness. So I, I really don't think that belief is there anymore. There's really? no, that's, right. at least in my opinion, I see like the stigma at least is kind of decreased from what it was years ago. I appreciate that. I appreciate that really indeed, because you're right, we need, do need to end the stigma, but having worked in an industry where you discuss everything about one's personal life, therapy comes up and then you would see a person in the party, and I'm referring to just a congregation of people, not in a social setting, just roll their eyes and think, oh boy, this person's got nothing to worry about, I've got the real problems and I'm dealing it with like, a, I'm dealing it personally with uh, integrity but <laughs> truth be told they're dealing with it like a like a baboon would <laughs> barbarically but that said i have to commend you on taking an out-of-the-box approach have you received any sort of um shall we say admonishment for the approaches that you take with your patients as a whole be it with mental health um, conflict 
or with drug addiction? Because from what I've read about you, just succinctly, you do take an out-of-the-box approach. Has there been has there been any admonishment from colleagues or in the medical community as a whole for the work that you do? As far as negative feedback or? Negative feedback. Let's use that word. I couldn't yeah. come up with a better word. Easier on me. I'm not really that good with the vocabulary. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and turn down. I'll try and turn down. I promise. Um, no, I haven't received any negative feedback, honestly. Um, oh, thank God. From either clients or my colleagues or supervisors or, you know, whoever. I've gotten pretty good feedback, not to toot my own horn, but unless no one's telling me and they're saying things behind my back, I've gotten no negative feedback. Well, you know what? God love you. God love you for that. Danny, your turn. I talk too much. <laughs> you use some big words I don't understand. So the th <laughs> what I'm kind of interested in is I always enjoyed going into the office, but do you do therapy online nowadays or how do you, because it's been a while for me. Yeah, I do. Um, I do both. I do in person and I also do telehealth, which has become very big since the COVID pandemic. Before it was just strictly in person. But now with COVID, insurance policies have allowed us to bill telehealth services. So it, there's a lot more virtual clients coming in, which is good because, you know, if it had, had it been virtual, they wouldn't have came in. It's a lot easier for them because it's at the comfort of their own home. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's so hard to find a a therapist that's available like in my town so to have telehealth you can virtually meet with any therapist in the country or in the world that you that you want which is really neat um i remember when i started therapy after five years of being in recovery couldn't get my relationships with men right i had a very bad past i had very abusive relationship for five years i had done things with my body that I don't wish upon anyone. So there's a lot of issues there and I just couldn't get relationships right. And I never thought that I'd be able to actually have, I never thought I would get married. I mean, that was the last thing I thought of, but I did. I went to therapy and my sponsor told me go for a year, don't date. And I went and I just, it was great at first. And then I just felt like I didn't have much to talk to because she said, do it with a man because you need to develop a rela safe relationship with a man. And so I did. I didn't, some days I would talk, some days I would try to think of things to say because I didn't have much to say. And almost to the year, something was uncovered that I didn't even really think about for like maybe 35 years. And it just kind of came out. And it was the thing that we kind of figured out was, why I was having these issues that the real reason like deep down and it's so interesting how if you just dedicate your time and just keep coming back to the the sessions things can come out that you just would never think you know that you would never I just wouldn't I don't think I ever even remembered it and then all of a sudden it just came out and it's, it's like my life changed after that. It was so bizarre. Do you see that a lot? Yeah. I call that the aha moment. <laughs> I kind of stole that from my sponsor, but it's Clever. Moment. it only took a year. <laughs> yeah. No, a year is actually, that's actually not bad. But therapy, you know, there's people are there for years and time mm. to cover a route to what's going on or they uncover a memory or, you know, something that they didn't realize was an issue until they really look back and like, okay. 
what happened to me? What message did that send me? How did that impact my future current life experiences? So yeah, no, I see that. I see that a lot. And it also just points back to the fact of it's okay to talk about what it is that's on your heart. Talk about it. But of course, with the right person at the end of the day, talk until you just basically get it all out. Even if it means screaming, crying, or wailing. But then just that one day, then it'll start to make sense. Right. Or therapist. <laughs> I don't mind. Yeah. I, I concur with what she said. Yeah. Because again, you've got the field experience and you've got the knowledge. Yeah. So how long have you been doing this and what does your future look like? What are you, are you going to be doing just this or do you have other things in mind that you are going to be adding to your? Yes, I've been doing this for about almost seven years now. What my future hopefully looks like, I do want to have a private practice. I do eventually want to have an outpatient clinic for um, substance abuse, kind of that figure out how to make that work. That's the end goal is to have an outpatient clinic where we can treat substance abuse, provide the medication needed for disorder and take it from there. I love that. Yeah. I did an outpatient my first time around. I got sober. I stayed sober 90 days. <laughs> it was a crazy time in my life. I, I was being, uh, I, I got sober and I don't know how it happened. I, I was so young and Charlie Sheen, I was hanging out with him at the time and his bodyguard became my bodyguard to keep me sober because he was in rehab. So I was doing an outpatient program with Kaiser and it was great. It was great. I just remember it really being impactful, actually. And uh, I was able to do one week in rehab, which I went to a place called Cry Help. It's a pretty big place in, in LA for a lot of people to recover. It's They teach you you go in and they really teach you to kind of start integrating right away. Like you're going to clean the toilets, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And, and you're just, you're not just a person that's paying $60,000 or $10,000 to be in a facility for a month. You're in there and you're actually taking care of your own stuff, your own sheets. You're, you know, you're not being taken to um, horse therapy you know, you're dealing, you're, they, they take us to downtown LA AA meetings and, um, just different places. Like I, it's so memorable to me. Yes, I did go out. And that was the reason why I brought up the story, but now I can't remember. But, uh, I, I, it was a very impactful thing for me to go and to be somewhere every day outpatient and right. be with other alcoholics because at that time I wasn't, I was AA, but I was, really confused. I had no idea that it was a disease. I just, I mean, it was just nothing that was even told to me or understood whatsoever in my mind. I just was sober. I knew that, you know, I drank and I had a drug problem, big time cocaine. And, um, it just seemed, uh, it just seemed like I could drink and hang out with the same people and, you know, I went out for 15 years. And then when I came back around, I finally learned this is a disease. I mean, God, I had no clue until I was 32 years old. That's how messed up I was living in another world. Um, you know, eight years of smoking meth. It was just, you know, beyond me. I come from a very good family. You know, we really, they really tried. 
educated. And here I am, you know, smoking a bong of meth for eight years. And it just, it's baffling. It really is to think that whole other life and that hustling just mentality and putting up with the five years of physical and mental abuse of someone who would just use me, you know, for drugs and money and holding on to that relationship. So crazy to stick with somebody who is doing that because you are so drug dependent mm -hmm. together. Um, right. But uh, I'm on going on a tangent now. <laughs> I'm just really grateful because it's a combination of therapy, AA, the outpatient, the experiences, everything combined that has brought me to this point where I'm very secure in my recovery. And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling so grateful for everybody, for you and, and for Chris, just people that, um, you know, work with us, crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think what Danny was trying to say is, she can empathize with what you're doing, having gone through a process which is quote-unquote out the box and not just clinical. And uh, Mistoka, if anything, both Danny and I implore you to continue with what you're doing. It's evident that there's a success rate. And uh, I've said it before on a separate occasion, and I feel it fitting to say it at this appropriate juncture, Thank you for the lives that you've saved and for the lives that you are going to help save. Mm -hmm. We salute you and we tip our hat to you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. And folks, that brings this week's edition of Doing It Sober Live to an end. Thank you for participating. If you should catch up on Apple Podcasts, please go through the entire catalog. We'll only be back, Danny, help me write, June 3rd with our latest guest. We're going to be taking a break for a week or so. But don't fret, we will be back, and uh, we will notify on social media. But until then, God bless, look after yourself, and we'll speak soon. Remember, life is better when you do it sober. Pleasant evening to all. Good night. God bless. Bye-bye.